0: Welcome to the Out of the Woods Podcast. The top five headlines threat hunters need to be thinking of this week. Hey everyone, welcome to another edition to the Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. This is Scott Polig here with Lee Arkinall, and this weekly segment features the top five stories that threat hunters need to be thinking about, as well as our personal thoughts on the subject and hunting strategies. So with that, let's start off this year and dive into the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of January 9th, 2023. Hey Lee, one of the ones I was going to dive into kind of off the rip was an article through the Cyware News, and it's a Attackers abuse genuine Windows tool to deliver a Puppy Rat. Um, Classic. So this one's always, yeah, it's always interesting when you know that you're using a genuine Windows tool because I feel like that's just become the norm. I mean, it's the the tools that attackers can use to just not get detected because the tools already exist. But what was really interesting about this is. It wasn't, they used the tool on the box. They actually packaged up the tool with their payloads. So they used where which is usually the tool that detects when faults and errors occur and kind of logs and triggers on those things. But one of the things that the where exe needs is the fault rep DLL and that's actually the malicious payload that they use. So the, the where faults used that DLL when it runs, they packed the their malicious DLL to kind of replace that, and it's kind of like that side loading, right? DLL side loading, and we've talked about it before, but you know, something to remind you know anyone that is not familiar with that DLL side loading. Kind of the, the trend on how that works is typically the executable will um, either look for the specific path of the DLL that it wants. It's you know hard coded into the executable, and then if that's not found, then it looks adjacent, like the same directory where the executable exists. And if that's not found, then it kind of goes to like the system root directory kind of thing, which in you know most cases like system 32 and stuff to look for DLLs that might exist there that it, that match what it's looking for. So in this case, since it packaged the DLL with it, it's obviously doing the side loading of it's passing the DLL from where it was executed from, and that's kind of how they, they you know made that infection chain work, and that's how they got the puppy right in there. So you know, this is something? Really just highlighting how people are still using DLL side loading and then also, you know, passing, I think it's interesting when you see Windows executables that already should exist on the box itself, getting passed with, you know, the the payloads and stored somewhere else and executed. So, you know, when you're hunting when you see Windows tools being executed from non-Windows directories, for instance, or even Windows tools being passed over the network. Uh, I think that's kind of a telling sign that there might be something interesting going on there. So yeah, that's kind of like highlights of that article.
1: So that's really interesting because a tried and true method of attackers just continuing to work. Not only are they using what exists there, and I, I'm not sure what the permissions were or what controls they had there, but in organizations that have poor privilege or permissioned controls, you know, that that could make things easier. Correct me if I'm wrong, but this is what I pulled out from what you said for like a nice hunting tip. I mean, if you find a executable and a DLL in the same directory, would that be in, and correct me if I'm wrong, that would be indicative to a, a DLL loading attack. I know you said that's what they did, but as a hunter, you know, I know some tools capture files being created, whether it be executables, text, DLLs, or just you know strictly scripts or whatever. So if you're hunting or creating a hunt and you find those two files immediately right away. Does that provide enough context to make that assumption?
0: So there definitely have to be places whitelisted, right? Because program files and things like that will have the DLLs and executables, you know, kind of together. But when you find those weird instances, like in this case, I believe it was introduced with an ISO file. So it was ISO with everything kind of packed together. Or, you know, if you had a, like a zip or something where everything's packed together, now granted, you know, people download programs and will have all those things together too. So it would be something that, you could look at for sure. You might have to do some exclusions and you'll definitely have some false positives in there. But I mean, it's kind of like, that's how I come up with really interesting hunt ideas is starting with like a very overly generalized idea and then figure out how I can fine tune that down or distill it into something that is more practical, more usable. And then granted, you know, some people have this misconception that when you hunt for things, there's, you know, you're good at hunting, there's no false positives. That's not necessarily the case either. That's why hunting is slightly different than detection. You know, the goal in detection is to have high fidelity, no false positives. You know, hunting is really about data. So you expect false positives, but how can you return the data in a way to where you as a person or something can say, these are likely true positives and these are likely false positives, but they're kind of intermixed.
1: Yeah, yeah. Threat hunting is definitely about that building the relationship between the events, right? Like being able to tell a story. And the, I guess the easy part, I'll use air quotes there, the easy part of threat hunting is you could actually sit down and perfect your threat hunting skills with legitimate data, right? Like if you said, like, I want to look at this executable. And, you know, once you find something you're looking for, just chain the events together. Like what happened before using process IDs, using parent processes, what happened afterwards, you know, follow that chain. And then when the time comes for like actual threat hunting or you find maliciousness, you've already practiced it. You've already trained on those skills and you're not trying to learn it on the job. That's what it means to me. Are you
0: new to threat hunting? Are you looking to sharpen your threat hunting skills? Do you want some social media cred to prove that you are a real threat hunter? Join Cyborg Security Senior Threat Hunter Lee Arkanall in our latest fully interactive threat hunting workshop covering credential access. The workshop will dive into the area of credential access, including the mechanics of credential access, what adversaries are looking for, tricks of the trade, and Most importantly, how threat hunters and organizations can hunt for signs and traces of credential access in their environment. When you join, you will get free access to a suite of threat hunting tools you can take home with you, along with real world hunt data you can hone your skills on. And if you can complete the final challenge, you'll get your credential access level one certification that you can share on social media to prove that you have mastered hunting for credential access join up at the link in the description or check out the event on our LinkedIn page.
1: So uh, what do you got on uh, Docket? So one of my favorite resources, um, and I'm pretty much like a fanboy here, um, but the defer report. Um, These guys are a great resource. Their reports are always amazingly thorough with the level of detail they use, the visualizations they use, they have charts they have graphs they have the logs like the log sources they pull from the incidents they actually save them so like you'll see you know windows event viewer you'll see screenshots from there you'll see screenshots of the actual code uh, and whatever tools they use so it's really useful on um, if you haven't followed them i would highly recommend it um, go back and just read some of their past ones it really does make mondays a lot easier whenever they release a new one this one covers your sniff that is a, a banking trojan Uh, it's going through and it's still active, but it's funny that you mentioned ISOs because this is how this one was delivered. Once it landed, I'll tell the story real quick, but came through an ISO, uh, did a bunch of auto discovery. So there were scripts that ran, uh, there was some manual discovery, then they gained persistence through the run registry key, which is one of my favorite techniques to use. They included cobalt strike. There was some process injection. They laterally moved to the DC. And they gained the credentials and through memory. They say was uh, Mimikatz or you know, injecting into processes. And then once they hit the DC, they laterally moved to the um, backup server. What I really want to highlight here, though, is the level uh, once again the level of detail and how they break these down. It maps to the MITRE ATT&CK framework. So as you're reading it from top to bottom, it's kind of like the MITRE ATT&CK framework from left to right. So there's like it always starts with initial access, and normally impact is the last tactic used. But there are some Windows event logs that they included in the investigation that I really found interesting. Because as a log junkie, I'm always looking for different sources of logs telling me different things. But there are so many that I can't just say, hey, I want to look at this and figure it out. They included three. Um, they use the Microsoft Windows VHDMP, um, which covers virtual disks, and it has an event that actually captures when an ISO has come online. Uh, So whenever it's actually mounted, this event, which is event code one, will actually capture it, which is exciting because uh, we talked about threat hunting and how it's not just finding the smoking gun, but it's more of painting the picture and confirming things actually happening, but how they happened, Mm -hmm. right? So they included those log sources. Then they had the log source that covers bits client, which was it was involved in the attack as well, and then finally, the last log source they talked about was uh, Microsoft Windows Terminal Services Local Session Manager. and this is how they were able to identify the RDP traffic that was happening from the attackers, and they used those logs to really figure out once again what's going on and get some artifacts to pivot off of. and it's just such like uh, it's just such a good resource of seeing what an actual attack looks like what artifacts that they used, and how you can chain these together. And literally, what they did was paint the picture of the attack. And it's just, I really, my hats go off to them. They always do really good work, but it's just, it's always a good report to read. And I always it's just, I don't know, I'm gushing now, I should stop. But what do you
0: do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I looked at this this morning as well. And you know, one of the cool things about threat hunting in general is, you know, when we, get, when we see reports like this, we always compare it to what we already have created that cyborg and you know off the rip we had six things that covered you know six things they did so it's kind of cool to see you know that's why threat hunting is so impactful is it persists like the The ability to use it um, persists a lot longer than IOC specifically because, you know, this just came out January 9th and the packages we developed were, some of them were over a year old. Still detecting the same stuff. So that part's really cool. Also, you know, when I ran through this, you know, including those six, I was able to find, you know, six or seven more potential hunts to do. So like 13 hunts off this one, you know, report, which, you know, I think is hugely impactful and speaks a lot to the report, the amount of the detail you talk to, Right enables you that. But one of the other things I want to call out, which is common is these types of reports, there's so much information and they talk to many different disciplines. So I read the report and you read the report. We might find similar things we don't hunt for. We might find completely different things. And it's just one of those things where, you know, obviously you can't, you know, occupy everybody on your team's time to read a report, but there is value that others find so if you if you read a report and don't see much, it might be worth getting a second set of eyes because they might help you find things to look for. And then also with these reports, they do a really, really, really good job of trying to explain things in the text. But it, I think it's hugely important to pay attention to the visuals they create and the images they capture because oftentimes I've found details in there that they don't really harp on that I am have been able to use in hunts and things. So so for people that just rely on tools to kind of ingest and scrape reports in that can't capture images, there might be some things missed, um, especially with this source. So I find that hugely valuable. But yeah, that's Absolutely. kind of all I kind of have on that take.
1: Yeah. And just one last thing. They are very good for learning. Like you said, behaviors and tactics, techniques. In this example, they have discovery activity going on and they single out the automated and the manual. So if you... Ever had a question of, well, what does automated discovery traffic look like? They have a picture. They have all the commands that are there and they show how everything looks regimented and how it's like putting out to a file. Mm -hmm. So, like, it's all documented. Then the manual discovery, it looks like something you would do to troubleshoot. So, you have like, who am I? Time, IP config, you know, like simple things that it looks like a normal human being. Like I said, it's just a very good resource. But we got more to talk about. So, what's up next, Bully?
0: Yeah, so I picked up this article from Security Week, and it's many of 13 new Mac malware families discovered in 2022 linked to China. One, it just caught my eye because, you know, you don't hear about Mac malware much. And then, you know, when I see these things and, you know, it's a very summarized general kind of report to kind of talk about it. And I didn't really care too much that China was the source of the Mac malware they were talking about, but I like to see where their sources are from because a lot of these like news specific sources always do a good job referencing their s- source of technical detail. And that's where I go next. So I actually pivoted from this over to the objective c.org. And that's where they, it was a great, great write-up of just a bunch of different Mac malware. And it, it kind of talks through the process of like, this is the list of the malware this is where you can get the malware and get copies of it you know just to kind of analyze it yourself here's the tools that you use to analyze it they did a really good job of kind of the timeline of the different families of the mac malware and when they were seen walking down all the way to you know december 2022 you know starting from january 2022. i remember they did you know i covered sys joker back when that came out in january 2022 And that's the first one listed in this article here. But one of the things that I I really liked was they broke out kind of like, what's the infection vector? What's the persistence mechanism? What are the capabilities for each malware family? And when I see stuff like this, especially like I, I don't analyze things on Mac, really, right? So as far as, what are the different hooks and things people try to take advantage of are kind of new to me for a Mac perspective. Like I kind of, you give me windows, I I can tell you probably 10 different ways someone can do something. But it's also interesting to kind of have this view in that Macs aren't huge targets. So it's like the infancy of attack. Like I feel like if people, when people started attacking windows, they probably had the similar approach, very basic way to do things. And then, as security started stepping it up, they started changing, and that's why we have these many different ways the attacks kind of happen. Well, Mac's not really there yet, I was looking across every single malware family they listed there, and there's really two. And I focus on persistence because persistence to me is, you know, far enough left when you look at like, you know, the kill chain or you look at uh, Miter framework. It's far enough left, and it's also something that is typically easier to hunt for more consistent because a lot of the persistence mechanisms get shared a lot. And in this case, they use the, the directory slash library, uh, slash launch agents, and then library slash launch daemons. And they just basically create a plist file. And in that there's basically, you know, the plist file kind of has like a, I, I want to call it XML structure, but it has a structure just like JSON XML kind of has. And, in it, it basically sets up, here's the thing we want to run, run on boot, run on whatever, kind of like when you think of like registry run keys, but there's like the two ways they do it. And every single one of the malware families uses that technique. So, you know, I, I don't know how great collecting logs or data is, but man, if I was going to try to defend against Max, or even just hunt across Max, if I had the capability or, you know, if I were to do investigations and incident response, I'd be looking there every time now. I mean, it's like I added that to my tool belt look at the launch agents plists files and see what those are pointing to and look at the launch daemons. And I'm sure there's legitimate things in there. So, you know, it probably behooved me to get a little familiar with, hey, on Macs, what's really common versus what is added or third party or whatever. But, you know, if you if you run them in an environment or enterprise environment, you should very easily be able to say what's normal pretty quickly it was just compare and contrast. But that was what I took away from these two articles kind of pivoting across, but um, was just that mechanism of how Mac malware works or runs, uh,
1: that's awesome and thank you for sharing this resource because first of all yes mac is still the the question mark in the room right it's, st- it's still like you said it's in its infancy uh people have been attacking it for a while but there's not a lot of um you attack it great you did it um but it's not like the windows environment where what is it like 70 80 of the environments or yeah. organizations are still relying on that but listeners out there if you see this <laughs> if you actually go to this link and you take a look at it. If you plan on doing something like reporting or just getting better at your skill, I would highly recommend coming here. Just looking at it. First of all, the author provides all the malware samples in a collection. Then they provide the tools they used. And once again, the level of detail is insanely powerful to our community. Um, so if you plan on something, try to mirror this because this is really good. And he's got a book. He's got you know more and more references, almost enough to like bear you. Um, which is good because if you want to get better, you know, knowing what is out there to use is great. But yes, to go on to the point of the infancy, I'm really curious, excited, and scared to see where it does go. Because looking back at the MITRE ATT&CK framework, you know, you look at the oldest technique they have. And you say, man, man, that's where we're s- they started. And if you go all the way to the very end, you now have the newer techniques that are more and more subtle and more and more dangerous. And just blending in with legitimate traffic, and you say, "Man, if we could get ahead of this, <laughs> hopefully somehow, that'd be great." Because if we look at Windows and we know where it's going already, what can right. we do to beat them there?
0: Yeah, and imagine they're going to be using, you know, similar techniques that they've matured in the Windows space. You know, kind of similar for Linux and Mac. It's going to be kind of. I think there is going to be a, a very similar trend. You know, they're going to have to obfuscate. They're going to have to kind of have some misdirection going on, you know. And I think with being a a Unix, Linux kind of, you know, I love those OSs in general for what you can just do from the command line. It's very doable for them to do those similar things in these
1: environments. You know what would be super great is if the developers and the engineers and all the great minds at Apple... Take a look, and they start saying, like, "Okay, you know Mimi Cats was used, and you know it abused windows uh vulnerability of keeping you know I forget what it was. I think it was a plain text for a while, or they kept for them. a while, yeah, there
0: was a plain text that was it was like a key in registry or the, no plain text in memory because of a yeah. specific key registry yeah
1: yeah i just I just hope maybe they can look and start covering start like I said, getting ahead of it and start almost bug bounty saying like, all right." this was a vulnerability in Windows, yes, we're a different operating system, yes, we do things differently, but is there a way that we could check to see if we are vulnerable for this technique? And if they start doing that internally, hopefully that would really make it a lot harder for threat actors to eventually get to the point where we are for Windows.
0: Yeah, I feel like Windows became more of a security-like company just because Windows got beat up so much. You know, Windows before was really about providing services and something people can use, kind of like what Mac is about. It's about their user experience and how, like, Windows has had to layer on so many things since then to address all the other security stuff. So, I mean, they either can address it now or they'll be forced to if Mac becomes a big enough target, right? So Right. So, yeah, what do you got next?
1: All right. So, uh, the first big supply chain attack of the year? Not sure but it's a big one, Visual Studio Code. Aqua, Nautilus, researchers have recently discovered that attackers can easily impersonate popular Visual Studio Code extensions and trick unknowing developers into downloading them. If you don't use VS Code, um, what is it, it's an IDE, or you could use it as a text editor, or you can, if you're a super developer, um, you could use it for anything when developing. It has lots and lots of extensions that you can download. Now, these vary from, you know, can I just change the color of my text or the spaces or the background to it actually helps you code better, be secure, um, you know, it has extensions for Python, Jupyter. It has things like prettier code format. So basically, if you are trying to standardize what your code looks like, there's extensions that will write it or as you write it, it will space it out the same way every single time, more professional and more consistent looking. Now, the danger comes in is that these extensions, when you download them. They run at the level of privileges that the user currently has. So if you are using your personal computer and you are and you have God mode and you download an extension, you know it runs in God mode. It also runs without a sandbox, so it's not really controlled. Now, what that means is if someone maliciously codes it, they can run whatever they want um, in that extension. Now it gets a little scarier because simple things like thing about phone apps you know someone throws it on the uh, throws a malicious app on the uh, on the store Google Play or Apple and it looks exactly like the legitimate one you're looking for the name is exactly the same if you're searching quick you just say hey yeah there it is you know that's what i want you know MITRE attack framework calls this masquerading but basically the idea is it looks exactly like what you want and if you're in a hurry you just hit go yes i allow it and it installs it there's a couple of ways to you know look for the differences in the marketplace you can you know see the url that it leads to if you see some issues with the url or you're reading it and the names don't match that's a flag right if it says this is python code prettier or a code formatter And you look at it and you see some things misspelled in the URL. You know, that's something you could look at. You can compare it to the actual existing one. So how many installs or how many downloads does it have? Uh, Is there a big difference? How many reviews has this uh, extension received? Um, So, you know, the the little bit of homework that you can do uh, could save you time. And what makes it even uh, even more dangerous, I guess, is that not only can you masquerade it, but you could also type a squat with the URL, but the display name. So whatever the extension is called, these names do not have to be unique. So if I wanted to go on there and copy any legitimate extensions name and make it my own, I could, you know, I can duplicate it. And once again, that becomes dangerous whenever it comes to, are you just clicking through? Are you downloading? if you're not doing your homework, think about like phishing, right? If you get a phishing email and you take time, slow down, just read through it, you could possibly find the red flags. Whereas if you just click on the link, you know, they says Christmas bonus uh, because you're interested, you know, you could get burned. Same, the same idea, uh, same approach, but it's, I don't know if I've said it, but they did a, Stack Overflow did a survey and 74.48% of developers use VS Code. So this is, what, almost 75%, three quarters of developers use it. So a large target audience, right? Which even makes this even more critical. But yeah, scary. What are your thoughts?
0: Yeah, I mean, just that last comment, developers, usually developers have, depending on your business, intellectual property associated with that business to some degree. So, you know, if an attacker were able to get an extension that can run with the privileges of that developer to then give access to the information and data and things um, through that, um, that'd be kind of a, a big win for the attacker and, you know, and a, definitely a risk for the, the business. But yeah, the, the big thing I had a problem with all of this was the lack of control to be able to spoof things, um, but just to display names and things like that. Yeah, uh, I, I feel like... I love having marketplaces available to get, get things like this. And I do like the convenience factor, but I mean, there, there needs to be, I mean, the marketplace itself should take on some responsibility as far as you shouldn't be able to put up a package with the exact same name. You know, it's kind of like whoever got there first gets it. And that's kind of how I look at it. Right. And they can do their own versioning of the name if they want or something like that. But I feel like that's just crazy. And then the other yeah. thing that, did, I thought was crazy was you know the, the verified checkmark that they you know brand people with so when you put your package up there you get this blue checkmark you can say verified and it actually doesn't verify that that publisher is the publisher of, of whatever it just verifies that whoever up, up, you know upload the package owns the domain that's referenced in the package so you can go buy any domain you want and put it up there and get a blue checkmark it doesn't seem like it's misleading, I should say, to the people that are getting things from the marketplace. Um, And these are things that, you know, social engineering is like the, the initial of everything. It's the one thing everyone can do without a technical background, and then you allow them to do it technically. I mean, those are the things we should really be addressing when we offer services to people. Like, don't let people use your stuff to social engineer somebody else. You should take some accountability for that. So th- those things were problems for me. But then the the POC they did, I thought that was great. The visual. So they have the you know the globe map of the world. The one package they put in there to masquerade. You know they put code in so it beacon back when someone tries to, when someone installs that extension, and they just have a screenshot of the globe and dark view in the. In the next 48 hours when they push that package and all the little red orbs i mean it's like lit up globally you can see where people grab their package they masqueraded as a popular package and it's the pre-year that's what they were using and it just you can see all over europe parts of south america the united states india there's a lot in india because there's a lot of developers there philippines you all that kind of stuff so it just kind of shows in 48 hours the impact of just taking advantage of how the platform presents things and the lack of controls around the marketplace. So cool article for sure.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And the speed is scary. You talk about privileges. I mean, think about if you're, you know, like a small small to medium sized business and you're the one developer, right? You have the source code and then all of a sudden you download an extension and you ransomware (laughs) or just encrypt all your data. Like that business is possibly gone unless you have a good startup now. But yeah, great article, scary, but very enlightening. And for the last article, what do you have,
0: Um. Oh yeah, this was kind of a fun one just because these things bring things to the top of mind. So this is a a bleeping computer article and all it really is talking about is Microsoft ends Windows 7 extended security updates on Tuesday. No. Uh, Yeah, I know. So, you know, us that have been in the space for a while, we've seen OS's, you know, run their end of time and then still persist beyond that. So, uh, basically it just means that Microsoft's going to stop offering basically security updates for Windows 7. E- even for the extended support that you know people can purchase, you know, Windows kind of how they operate is they say we're going to stop supporting this OS and then they know businesses won't be able to get up, you know, get off of those OSs. So, they basically say, but if you pay us, you know, we'll extend that service for three more years or whatever the term is, just to make some money, <laughs> quick, quick money off of them. And then they finally hit that, okay, but now it's really going to stop and you can't pay anything extra. Seriously, we're so, tired of Windows 7. Right. But I bring this up because, you know, we have a lot of people in the security space that do research, right? Or they have labs. So just knowing that these are one becoming into support if you want to grab your Windows 7 image it might be worth getting a, an image right so it's not so hard to find because I'm sure it won't be distributed as easily so make sure you have that for your lab but two you know maybe you don't really want to be running everything in your lab on Windows 7 anymore you know maybe you want to make sure to have a good 10 or or 11 really cuz 10 um they mentioned here that you know, in 2025 that's when 10 is supposed to expire so even as a business, if you have seven maybe you really want to look to upgrade to eleven not worry about worry about ten so you don't kind of run through that quick turnaround again or have to pay that extra money to get that extra support for a few more years on ten but so there was that that I want to kind of bring up from like that you know research but then also if there's no more security updates coming out you know it's pretty classic for hey there's this vulnerability found in Windows 10 and it goes back to XP right reuse the code. Whatever, you know, that kind of thing. So, you might be in an organization, and I've, I've seen them in the past, where there's a certain critical infrastructure that you use uh in your organization that relies on something that needs to run on Windows 7 and you haven't figured out how to move it off or plan on just keeping it around and trying to like put fences around it or whatever. It's good to know where those things exist because as those new Windows vulnerabilities come out, especially as a threat hunter, you already know this space or the landscape where, hey, if this gets exploited, this is where it will occur, right? Something we can't patch to fix this. Um, then you can have hunt specifically to the that landscape to say, look for post exploitation activities, right? So that's a way where you can kind of manage some of that risk, which is really what, you know, cybersecurity is about to say, okay, here's the common techniques that happen post exploitation. You know, there's discovery, there's these points of persistence and things, you know, especially for Windows 7, you can probably get your top 10 things you you would expect to see. It'd be a good thing to kind of have that running when you, new vulnerability comes out and you know, you can't patch things. Well, now you have some sort of way to address that. So that's kind of what made me think about this. This is a good reminder because honestly, I didn't remember when Windows 7 was supposed to go away. And I'm sitting there thinking, about, well, shoot, I need to be jumping to Windows 11 here too. So some of my stuff, but yeah, just a a good reminding article and kind of some strategy based things I think about when I read it.
1: Yeah, I think that's an unfortunate life cycle of, you know, technology Uh, and you nailed it right on the head, right? Instead of worrying about patch management, organizations now have to focus on, all right, it's now risk management, right? Um, Because when you're patching, uh, you know, patch comes with its own risk, but it's different like because you're updating it, you're making it more secure. Now you kind of have what you have. And now it's, you got almost like technical debt. You could move forward if if possible. Things like this really put strain on like socks. Now there are, like you said, the techniques for hunting. Um, You could definitely prioritize or take all those assets and put them in a higher criticality for prioritization. Things like this make it tough, right? Because now it's it's all out there. It's not, nothing's getting better. So whatever's there, uh, whatever vulnerability still exists, still exists. But such is life. I hope every organization can get to 10 quickly, but yeah, that is another very good article. But thanks.
0: Yeah, so with that, I kind of want to remind everybody since I've got you as a co-host especially. So I just want to mention Mr. Lee Arcanal, Um, if you're new to threat hunting or you know you want to sharpen in your threat hunting skills and also be able to have like a credly cred to kind of prove on your social media and social networks that you've done real threat hunting activity you should join Lee in his latest fully interactive threat hunting workshop, which will be covering credential access. The workshop will kind of dive into the area of credential access and topics, including the mechanics of credential access, what adversaries are actually looking for, tricks of the trade, and most importantly, how threat hunters and organizations can hunt for signs and traces of credential access in their environment. When you join, you'll also get free access to a suite of threat hunting tools you can take home with you. Along with real world hunt data, you can hone your skills on, which I think is one of the coolest parts is being able to just routinely go through things or dig for different other artifacts and and such. And if you are able to complete that final challenge that's presented in these workshops, that's where you'll get your credential access level one certification badge um, that you can share out. If you're looking for how to join, you can join up in the link in the description for this podcast. Or you can check out the event on LinkedIn page. Just look for the Threat Hunting Workshop Cyborg on credential access. So with that, I wanna thank everyone for joining our Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. Looking forward to syncing back up with everybody next week. So with that, it closes out the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of January 9th, 2023. Happy hunting, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Cyborg Security, check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and follow us on social media.
1: We'll see you next time.